Welcome to What the If. I am Philip Shane, a documentary filmmaker, and I am here with Professor Matthew Stanley. This is a very special What the If for me in particular, and that we have one of my favorite science fiction writers of all time yep. here with us, Alistair Reynolds. How are you, Al? I'm very good. Thank you. Thank you both. And it's a great pleasure to be on What the If. Thank you so much. The book you've been working on, the next book will be coming out early 2020, and it's called Bone Silence. That's correct. Yeah, it's um, it's the third in my kind of loose trilogy about the Ness sisters, who are two two young ladies who live in on a sort of little asteroid floating around the sun about ten, at least ten million years from now. Wow. And they run. It's very very far future, sort of um, deep time stuff. But it's a it's a kind of swashbuckling, colourful, epic pirate story. Sort of my my attempt to sort of do Robert Stevenson. In, in space with, with sort of lots of pirate illusions and the bones the, the, the bone of the bone silence is um, one of the sort of details of this universe that the, the the ships that sort of sail around the sun use these giant alien skulls as a kind of covert communication method so oh, when they a, and they want to sort of cool. send trade secrets from one, one to another they don't use the sort of radio they use these skulls and these sisters are they have a, a particular ability to sort of plug into these skulls. It's kind of like the old crystal sets where you kind of have to move a little <laughs> a little wire wow. across the skull until you get a signal. So <laughs> bone silence, it's like, it's like um, you know, run silent, run deep. It's, it's also all the sort of submarine films that I enjoyed are sort of mixed in there as well. There's, there's all the sort of pirate nonsense. <laughs> that is... Awesome. Well, I tried to have fun with it. Yeah, that is fantastic. Yeah. And, um, and uh, you are brought to us by... It's actually, we got in touch through the MIT Technology Review, I guess, or MIT Press. Just MIT Press, yeah. Yeah, and they have, um, they published a collection of uh, short stories called 12 Tomorrows, edited by Wade Rausch. And just tell us what you, you have a story in there that is the inspiration for what is going to be today's If. Yes, well, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a very good book. It's full of sort of real sort of, I'd say kind of cutting edge science fiction stories that are playing on contemporary developments in sort of science and technology and culture and extrapolating them forward into the sort of, you know, maybe the next 50 years or so, but but not getting out into sort of contact with aliens or time travel or sort of galactic wars. It's sort of somewhat more grounded science fiction, which is always a kind of mode that I've enjoyed operating in as, as a writer. Yeah. And I, I quite like the idea of playing, sort of thinking of, ahead to sort of, you know, the late 21st century, what kind of technologies are going to be commonplace, what kind of things will we be able to do then, what won't we be able to do then. And one of my sort of perennial hobby horses that I sort of like to, an idea that I've enjoyed playing with in sort of science fiction novels and stories over over quite a few years is is the idea of sort of immersive telepresence or robotic telepresence. And it's, it's a kind of souped up version of virtual reality or augmented reality and robotics. So the idea is that you you can be somewhere and you would perhaps put on a suit or a pair of goggles or maybe just have an implant and you'll be able to project your sense of physical presence into another body, which might be a robot. 
and that robot could be halfway around the world, could be up, out in space, and you have a sort of very, you know, sort of high, high bandwidth data link. So all the sensory impressions that the robot are picking up are fed directly into you, into your brain, and you really don't feel it as, as if you're anywhere other than in, inside this other body. And I think this is it's one of those technologies that there's no real reason for it not to become commonplace. I mean, it's it's it, it's sort of just pregnant, waiting to happen. So, so on one level, I'm quite excited to play with it as, as in sort of science fiction terms, but I'm also sort of slightly frustrated that it hasn't happened. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. If I remember, so I, I um, have read the Blue Remembered Earth trilogy, and mm-hmm. I remember you, I believe it's in that book, right, that you called, you, you have golems or golems? I can, yeah, I think I had some, uh, it's going back a few years now, I remember I was, I was trying to create a sort of suite of different sort of levels of technology that the characters have access to, and they have all sorts of different ways of sort of a, getting into this telepresence sort of scenario um some of them they i mean it was sort of like 200 years in the future or 150 years in the future so i thought well they'll definitely be able to do robots but i also took it a bit further and said well they you know you you would actually be able to rent your own body out to someone so if you were just sort of you know a bit like a sort of uh, airbnb but with your body so if you're sort of like on a day where you're not you don't really have any plans you can actually let someone else hijack your body so if you're living somewhere sort of photogenic you can have a tourist sort of hop into your body while you kind of go into a kind of stupor and they just get to be you for a day and they sort of move you know they can go and go to a nice restaurant and eat some nice food and at the end of it they hop out of your body and you get paid for it yeah so and and then i also thought well if you have really rich sort of surveillance technology so you have sort of um lots of cameras and sensors distributed around the world, you actually wouldn't even need to have a physical body to hop into. You could just sort of project your your sort of sense of self into into any location. You might you wouldn't necessarily be able to manipulate things or interact with ob- with objects. But you could certainly move around, kind of like a sort of disembodied boat ghost. But you'd just be sort of addressing data feeds from sort of lots of ambient uh, sensors. So again, I you know Maybe the tide is turning a, a bit now. People are getting a little bit, probably rightly suspicious of sort of like the, the, the globalization of surveillance technology. Yeah. But it, sort of 10 years ago, I think, well, you know, we're going to have, we, in the UK, we already have sort of CCTV cameras everywhere. It's not too hard a stretch to imagine that every square meter of the planet would be covered by some sort of sensory device. So if you wanted to sort of project yourself into sort of a remote part of the Kalahari Desert, there would be a camera that was sort of picking up a feed from that point. So you could sort of go there immediately and inhabit that point and sort of move around. And I would say the, um, like they're the augmented, whatever you want to call it, augmented intelligence or AI or augmented technology has gotten so good that it's like uh, the, when they, Apple introduced the new Mac Pro, which is like the new sort of tower computer cheese grater as we used to call it if you're an apple user <laughs> and uh it, they just sort of and i love sometimes this will happen with technology companies especially apple it's like to you could go to the website and it turned out that on the on the just sort of the regular safari browser you know you could click on this little thing and it said see the you know see the computer in your own room and it was uh you know Basically, your camera turned on, and there was the computer really well rendered. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I couldn't believe it. Like, And I would have thought, you know, when I heard about augmented, uh, augmented reality, that's what they call it, 
And the idea that you had to look at the screen, which as it is for now, until we get implants, that that would not be very engaging. But I found that there was enough signifier, I don't know, something grabbed the brain that I really felt like, you know, I was just staring at the screen the whole time and I was having fun moving this thing around and the lighting changes as you move it. It seems to recognize surfaces. I mean, it's, and, and so it's taking very few inputs and it's yeah, able to understand yeah. the world. So very, very cool. The thing I loved about the, uh, do you pronounce, did you pronounce him Golem or Gollum? In in your mind, probably golem. golem yeah, right. Golem. Golem. Yeah, okay. yeah. Which is like an old. I remember learning it for like in Hebrew school. It's like an old Jewish myth, isn't it? That yeah, it's kind of the Jewish yeah. Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's, what I loved was that that seemed like a great combination of like low tech and high tech. It's like you still the physical physical presence is still physical presence, and until you yes, get truly yes. magical technology, you you need this stage. So here's what we're gonna say. What the if? You could again. project your consciousness into a robot. And that robot is an astronaut on a space mission. Yes. In honor of Apollo 11. For those of us who get frustrated or complain about, my God, it's been 50 years and, you know, we've yet to go back. In the 4 billion year lifespan of the moon, 50 years, no big deal. Right. Yeah, the moon doesn't care. Yeah. She will yeah. leave the yeah. light on for us. And so she's waiting for us to come back. So let's say, well, where, Alistair, where would you like to go? We could go to the moon, but we could go anywhere. Where? Would yeah, you? well, I, I'd love to go to the moon. And I think within the technical capabilities that we have at the moment, the moon is probably about the limit because ah. if you remember the, 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 I mean, I was reading about the, the phone call that Nixon made to the Apollo 11 astronauts. Yeah. You know, this has got to be the most historic telephone call of all time, you know. Yeah. Whenever they show that again, they edit out all the time lag because there was significant time lag between yeah. Nixon's utterances and the astronauts' responses. And apparently, to some degree, it was all scripted. So they kind of knew what they were going to say. But nonetheless, they, as far as I'm aware, they've mostly edited out the, the time lag. But that's still... A fairly significant issue for communications to the moon and then once you get to mars it can be as great as 20 minutes so yeah. imagine if you know if you had if you had a sort of telepresence robot on the moon you might have to accept that there's a you know a, a lag of two seconds or two and a half seconds between you, in, you initiate an action and then, and then you see the response so if you're if you're inhabiting a a telepresence robot in a moon base or something like that, and you you reach for your cup of coffee, you're not going to see your, the, any any sign of that until the signals come back to you. So it could even fairly minor tasks would be a little bit tricky. And I guess things like the kind of stuff the astronauts might want to do, like pick up moon rocks and look at them, yeah, mm -hmm. that would be kind of at the limit of what you could do within the constraints of 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 time lag yeah. once you get beyond the moon and out to the orbits of mars then it becomes i think absolutely prohibitively impossible you know there's no way you can do telepresence across a time lag of 20 minutes i mean they, they, to, to some extent they do because that's how they send those commands to those rovers you know it's like but it's like okay move that move forward an inch yes yeah <laughs> and then they wait 20 minutes and they okay move another inch but it's obviously that's not the way to do it 
if you want to sort of get out there and start exploring Mars, you need to be able to do things in a much more seamless and sort of forward-going sort of sense. You can't keep... Yeah, so presumably those limitations would have some effect on what exploration tasks we would choose to do, right? So how might we set up our mission to best minimize those problems, do you think? Well, I think that... I just want to step in once a bit for those who are... uh, some Any of our listeners have not quite following. The time lag we're talking about is because the radio signals uh, because uh, uh, take so long that the speed of light is, you know, is finite. And so the radio signals travel at the speed of light and the moon is so far away that it takes those radio signals about, is it a second and a half to get there? And there's about a three second lag. I I was fudging a bit earlier because I couldn't remember whether it was a second or a second and a half, but it's getting on for two two and a half second round trip, isn't it? To the moon. And and Mars is so far away that if you you send a signal to tell the rover, hey, uh, start driving, it, that that signal will not get to Mars for 20 minutes. Then the rover will get it. Then it will move. And that's why they say, move a little bit because we see a rock there. So go as far as that rock, stop, and wait for the next signal. Okay, and then what we're saying is imagine you are... It's, it's just as if that rover... Imagine if that rover were a robot the shape of a, of a person and you could put on virtual reality goggles and gloves, let's say. And, uh, and but actually what we're talking about is a full, fully like matrix-like total immersion experience of being that rover. But the crazy thing, let's put the rover on, on the moon. We're coming back to the moon. Yeah, your little movement, you move your left hand the left hand of that robot on the moon isn't going to move for a second and a half, and you're not going to know what happened for three seconds. So yeah. anyone who's ever played a video game, yeah, if you've ever played a video game, and it's not, you've got a slow connection or your computer is slowing down, knows the intense frustration and confusion this would create. Yes. Yeah. And I, I think there are sort of two sort of technical get-arounds to, to sort of resolve that issue. One is impossible, which is that we develop sort of instantaneous signaling. I, w- I would imagine it's impossible, but if we had sort of faster than light or uh, instantaneous telecommunications, then obviously we could get around that by, by not using radio signals. But as far as we know from relativity and Einstein and everything that we've learned for over, over the last sort of 110 years, that's not possible. The universe is wired in a way that just doesn't allow us to break the speed of light barrier. So we're sort of stuck with that. We've got to work with that as a, as a fundamental constraint on our activities as a sort of species. So I think the only way that we can work with that limitation is if we're talking about telepresence is we're always going to have to have physical humans within a light second or so of the robots that we want to do the telepresence. So if we're talking about Mars, then it's sort of handy that Mars has a couple of moons that uh, are, are very close to the surface in their orbits, Phobos and Deimos. Incredibly easy to get to from a sort of energetics point of view. And I, I read somewhere that the, the fuel requirements for taking off from Earth and landing on Deimos or Phobos, I forget, I forget which one it is, uh, let's say Deimos, but it's actually easier to put a spacecraft on the moons of Mars than it is to put on our moon. You actually, ah. you, you, it requires less propellant. Obviously, it requires mm-hmm. a longer transit time. But in terms of the amount of fuel 
then then you're actually onto a winner in terms of going to Mars. No one's actually managed it yet. I mean, the Russians tried to put a probe onto one of the moons of Mars, and it oh. it, it, it was shot down by Martians, obviously. But, I didn't know that. Uh, <laughs> but it's, you know, there's quite a bit of there's some sort of serious speculation that you know rather than build a base on Mars, we would we would actually put astronauts on on the moons of Mars this time. And then they they're in a you know they're in a sort of microgravity environment then, but it. They're in a perfect position to do all sorts of teleoperation on the surface, and they'd be close enough that it would feel, you know, the commute comms would be very uh, not not a problem for them. That's interesting. Tell you what, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna make it hard on us. Instead of the moon, it's gonna be Mars. <gasps> yep. And okay. Matt had an interesting question. What kinds of things? As you're saying, what kinds of things could you do? Perhaps that might be the easier things, or if it's easier to think of, what are things that would be just impossible to do? For instance, I, I guess I can imagine that um, if you're on Mars, you want to, because we all do, we want to go to Mars. So let's imagine Elon Musk manages to get one of his um, starships to Mars, and it lands successfully, and it's got a bunch of basically like dummy robots in there, right? They uh, mm -hmm. And they're sitting there and he can rent them out so he can finally pay for this, <laughs> this <laughs> company he's built it's called spacex and i imagine let's say alistair if the um if you're in like a static place you're okay but for instance if you were under there are no waterfalls that we know of yet on mars but for instance or, or a, a rock fall or something like that something that needed speedy action you're doomed mm -hmm. stop off a cliff by accident yeah well, you, or it's, you're certainly doomed unless you have, the, unless you have a very, very short distance between the astronaut and the telepresence robot. You know, if you, I think if you, if you, if you're, if you're in orbit around Mars, then you, then if your telecoms are good enough and your robots sophisticated enough, then I'd, I, I would imagine that the astronauts would actually feel as if they were physically present, and the the light, you know, the lag is not going to be the limiting factor. In determining their survival if they get into a rock fall or something like that it's going to be the you know the mechanics of the robot or the physics of getting out of a rock slide which is going to be tricky just i mean i, I read a, an article about some people who had actually done this they'd actually uh, put on telepresence oh. gear and they'd gone they'd use sort of real real world internet links to operate robots in other other parts of the world probably within the united states but it was like another robotics lab and the robot they were using was really like just one of those sort of toy robots that sort of walks around the carpet. But they all reported a really strong sense of embodiment, and they really felt as if they were physically present in this little thing. Oh, yeah. And they felt well, one of the things I remember them was that they said they felt vulnerable because they felt that they were a small little <laughs> robot. So yeah. I think what I think what that tells us is that we're kind of. Our, our brains are kind of willing to go along with this. <laughs> ah. there's, there's something in our brains that is willing us um, to be duped into thinking that we're somewhere else, you know. So it's not actually going to be that difficult to create that sort of sense of immersion. I think once we sort of fool a few of the parameters, then our brains will quite willingly go along with the illusion, as they do in many, you know, there's many many sort of cases in 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 day to day life where where. We, our brains sort of manufacture an illusion for us. You know, what we see, what we think we see is nowhere near the the crummy fidelity of our eyes and our optic nerves. You know, the brain is manufacturing a much more high-res 
version of reality than what than than, than our eyes are actually supplying it. Yeah. And I think that will apply as well in terms of telepresence. You know, we 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 will be very easily persuaded to go along for the ride and feel that we're physically embodied. Yeah, I must say, having played um, video uh, virtual reality. Uh, games from gone into that just and not a lot just a bit but i'm actually making a documentary about the guys who made uh, the game mist i don't know did you okay. ever, and uh, and what they're doing now and of course now they're working in in virtual reality and uh, i had never tried a, uh, never put on a virtual reality headset the first time i did it and i was at their office and they said oh I'll take a look and this is we're i'm looking at a demo it's not even a fully fleshed out fully rendered thing and there was it, it was bizarre because you know, it was it was like looking at the quality of a video game now. So it wasn't bad, but it was that combined with the he, the fact that you're hearing and as you turn your head, the sounds move as if you're really turning your head. Was so it switches something in the brain. There's yeah. just a compl- yeah. I mean, I completely. I knew I wasn't there. I knew I was in a room playing this game, but like you're fully all your senses are geared towards reacting to what you see so that I only played it for maybe five, 10 minutes and then t- had that experience of when you take off the helmet, it's like where everything looks different. You did, you're facing a direction you didn't know you were facing. The people in the room have moved. I mean, it's incredible. So yeah. to have uh, that experience I, I, on I've Mars. Never had, I've never done that. I've never oh. had a, um... Put on, put on one of those helmets. So uh, you, you're, you're, you're five minutes ahead of me there. <laughs> I, I highly recommend it. <laughs> so that that kind of adaptation is interesting to think about with the time delay then, because if it's just a, if there's no time delay, it's just a matter of feeling like you're in a different spot. But presumably your actual experience of the world would be quite different um, with the time delay. So I wonder what your brain would do to make that seem natural and normal well i can say this that with the virtual reality experience i can report one thing and this didn't happen to me fortunately but they say that one of the thing one of the reasons that virtual reality has not become has just barely becoming popular now after all the i remember years and years and years ago right going to the mall and virtual reality is coming and all this sort of stuff was it makes you vomit (laughs) (laughs) if the lag is there was a they really had to figure out what how quickly does the uh, they call it the latency how how low a latency can you get how quickly does the rendering of the world need to react to your movements before you start your inner ear or whatever all your senses are thrown off by it and it has to be very fast this is why it's only now that we've had fast enough computers that can simultaneously create a, a really detailed three-dimensional image and sound as well as handle all the three-dimensional movements and things like that and your hand and blah, 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 blah. so um interestingly the 20 minute lag i don't think you'd have a barfing situation i think you'd uh, but i like the idea no that's go that's the go down to yeah the rest <laughs> get yourself a coffee and come back so <laughs> right 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 <laughs> yes and that's a worst case scenario 20 minutes i mean it that that's when mars and earth are at the sort of most extreme points in their orbits um, but it's it's never less than seven minutes or something like that i think oh okay okay but let's do i, I like what you said you're right it, it starts to get a little dull i think when it's that long so let's we've got a station on you are on phobos congratulations yeah. and uh Phobos has yet to crash into the planet as it does uh, frequently in science fiction, especially in <laughs> Kim Stanley Robinson's work. It's this very spectacular. It's well, yeah. Yep, they um, blow it up in the expanse too, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 It's a target. <laughs> <laughs> 
And so you're there in a nice, cozy uh, space station um, having quality tea. And there you have a... What, what do you call so so golem is what you or golem is what you called it in your earlier books what what do you call it now alistair this this robot that's down there representing yeah you. I, I think if i can't remember if this was also terminology i used in um blue remembered earth but in the um mit story i did which which was called different seas i i think i just called it a proxy ah okay you know, proxy so like, that's good you know yeah. uh, you, you, as always in science fiction you're trying to come up with these sort of invented terminologies for things that don't yet exist but you want something that sort of sounds like yeah that could be that could be plausible something that rolls off the tongue you know that, that isn't uh, too much of a mouthful so like, yeah yeah and so now i know there's that setting in the computers like whenever you have if if god forbid you have to go fiddle with your internet settings there's that thing that says uh, turn on proxy or disable proxy i'm right. thinking oh i could enable my proxy and yeah. go walk yeah. around somewhere so and 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 it's down on Mars now. Where on Mars would you like to be? Oh well, I no doubt at, at all in my mind. Speaking as a prospective Martian tourist, yes. no, I, I want to go and see the um, uh, the Grand Canyon, the Valles Marineris. Uh, I want to stand uh, on the edge yeah. of that. Thing. Yes. None of the. I was looking at a map of all the points on Mars where we've landed things recently, and none of them have ever been close to the. <laughs> To the to the to the canyon system, uh, and I guess that's probably because is it is it because they don't want to lose something in it, maybe, <laughs> or is it or is it just not not considered as geologically interesting as the craters or or the or sort of the the, the sort of mm-hmm. riverbeds and things that they're interested in, um, but yeah, sure, I would love to see what it looks like on the edge of that uh, crater, on the edge of that canyon. Sorry, just to sort of walk up to the edge of it, like in. Um, what is it in um, Total Recall or something like that? You know where they uh, you gaze where, out over at the end, yeah, here? Yeah. and your eye, eyeballs start bulging when your faceplate cracks. <laughs> but yeah, just to look down on that thing, which is sort of seven kilometers deep, I, you know, I, you can't get, I can't get that into my head. I mean, what is, is is there any part of it that's sheer? I mean, imagine looking down a sort of sheer cliff that was sort of four four miles. In, in height, you know, it would make El Capitan look like a pebble, you know. That's right. Yeah, and that's definitely the kind of thing you, you're you not going to get a rover to do, right? Nobody's going to try to land a rover six would, feet yeah. from the end edge of a <laughs> canyon, right? Although they would drive to it. In fact, I'm, I'm sure that they would love to get to that point. But they, yeah, it's interesting they haven't. I got to think that geologically, by the way, it's, it's I'm sure it's for them, it, what must be one of the most spectacular things, right? Because you can see I don't know, you know how millions of years back, like if, if it's like the Grand Canyon. Also, the length of it, isn't it? It's as long as the United States is wide, if I remember. Whoa. Something, yeah. right? 3,000 miles or something. Wow. Um, yeah, okay. Yeah. So you're a real daredevil, and you're going to, um, you've rented this proxy. And uh, what do you think? By the way, you think it's an hourly, I imagine it's an hourly rate on the proxy. Yeah, it's, it's an hourly rate. And, and then you've probably signed a load of, um, you know, paperwork or electronic paperwork about how much you owe the company if you damage it, that <laughs> yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're, there's going to be that kind of question in your mind, like, well, actually, I could afford that. If I if I sort of jump off the edge of this cliff, okay, I'm going to wreck the proxy, but hey, it'll be I'll worth it. Get yeah. great YouTube hits, you know. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I should say, if, if you're paying by the hour with a 20 minute delay in between every two seconds of commands oh, okay. that's going to get pricey fast well it'd be yeah. like those phone services you know they used to have what are they? <laughs> to pay by the minute right yeah. so i would think that the proxy has like even even my roomba 
robot vacuum cleaner, right? It has proximity sensors that can keep it from falling off a, a ledge. Yes. Yeah. I mean, these robots would be expensive pieces of hardware owned by someone, presumably, and you're, you're, you're effectively leasing it for a period of time. Uh, um, and yeah, they would have all sorts of built-in sort of almost like the, the you know the, the 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 third law, the Asimovian laws, wouldn't it? You know, the, the third one was it a robot must protect itself, except where such was it, except where such protection would conflict with the second law. And yeah, yeah. that's right. You know? That's right. But that's yeah, it's not too it's not too hard. I mean, we 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 build self-protection systems into many many pieces of technology these days. I mean, my car beeps if it thinks it's going to scratch itself. It gets really upset. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, so a robot that presumably these things would cost something. They wouldn't be completely disposable, although who knows. But, yeah, they would have some sort of self-defense mechanisms to stop them stepping off the edge of seven-kilometer cliffs. (laughs) But maybe some kid would have figured out how to get around that, wouldn't they? That's, That's right. right. Yeah, That's some right. 11-year-old in Arizona will figure out how to hack the uh, safety protocols on the Or even worse, like proxy. we talk about, right, we talk about with cars. The kid is going to hack your proxy while you're in it. That's yeah. going to be trouble. Or there's some other kid in another proxy. So you're standing yeah. <laughs> on the, the Grand Canyon looking down, admiring it. And then someone sort of comes up behind you in another robot and sort of gives you a boot. <laughs> <laughs> it's all sorts of mischief. That's right. And then now you have to find out where in the universe that kid is. Well, you figure he's close also. He's got to be also on Phobos. So, you know, yeah, that's right. when you're both yeah. done, there's going to be hell to pay. Somebody's yeah. Gonna find yeah. <laughs> so, okay, how, how, do, how do we take this further now? All right. So if this occurs, something occurs to me, which is that in, in the grand tradition of sci-fi, we're assuming that these robots look like humans, right? Two legs, two arms, two eyes. And that basically um, it it is just a proxy for ourselves. But the human body actually kind of sucks, right? We're not that great at many things physically. Um, So maybe it would make more sense to have our proxies not look like humans, but design something else entirely, uh, in which case we're inhabiting a physical form that's quite different than what our brains are used to. Yeah. What form would you take? Yeah. Ow. Well, I guess it would be, you, you would have a sense of the terrain that you were going to expect as well. And that might dictate the choice of body plan. And I, I, I start thinking about those um, clips I've seen of um, that company that builds those sort of scary robot dogs that sort of walk uh, around. Awesome dynamics. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And obviously they're, they're, they're finding that certain mm-hmm. architectures of, legs and bodies work better for certain um, scenarios than others. So yeah, you might have a, you might say, okay, well, I'm going to go to um, a particularly craggy part of Mars. So maybe I want to look more like a goat than a human (laughs) being. So I can sort of hop from boulder to boulder and I'll take, I'll I'll, I'll go for four, four legs. But then you'd, you'd, there'd have to be some leeway then in terms of how well, you felt embodied. I mean, right. Yeah. I, I feel I could step into another body that had the same morphology as my own without without too much trouble. But adjusting to a body with a different set of different sort of configuration of limbs and sort of other body parts 
maybe that becomes easier if you do it with practice. Who knows? Um, but it certainly, uh, it, the first time you do it, it would, it would certainly feel um, different. That'd be fun. Though. Like, I mean, so, for instance, if you wanted to climb down into the Valles Marineris, you might take on the form of a, a, a get a proxy that's a mule, as they have at the Grand Canyon. Not the mm-hmm. most glamorous. That definitely that would be a low rate. To be inexpensive, you can be a mule, or maybe you take the form of like a spider or something that can climb the walls down. Or a bir- actually now a, a, a for sure a bird, but although there's no not enough atmosphere, I guess on Mars, you'd have to have enormous wings. Is it possible to have wing a wingspan that's big enough to fly on Mars at all? If you're sufficiently small, probably. Oh, right. Right. You wouldn't want a human-sized one. You mentioned that you could take on the body. Right. So you could go into the proxy of a dragonfly type thing and fly into the Valles Marineris and fly all around it. That would be pretty spectacular. That would be pretty cool. Yeah. And and no matter what body form you, you, you adopted for the purposes of your visit presumably there would be a lot of sort of subroutines would be handling stuff that you didn't you know you wouldn't need to have your conscious attention on it all the time in, in the same way that when we when we're sort of walking around and we're sort of admiring things we're not sort of you know you're not thinking i must move my left foot six inches now i must move my right foot six inches you know all that stuff is sort of handing you know it's sort of running on a different sort of task level that we don't think about it's become proceduralized and that something similar would happen with robotics. You know, the, the you know, if you had a a mule or a, a dragonfly, then then the sort of mechanics of moving around could be run on a sort of sort of low level subroutine that leaves you free to do, do the sort of tourism bit. Yeah, and I think that's actually an interesting angle with something like the dragonfly. Is you would want to have the the sensation that you are in control of the flight, but in practice, of course, you really wouldn't be, right? The vast majority of the actual controlling would be done by the the robotics control system itself. So it would be an interesting illusion of thinking that you're flying, but actually not. Right. You'd like to be in a, a sort of flight simulator type thing where you can feel the turns and the dips and all that kind of stuff i must say one thing also about having put on the virtual reality thing is that strangely surprisingly you can get all that feeling of vertigo without any kind of flight simulator device like i always thought that that's if you wanted the full sensory immersion you would need to be in right like a simulator but actually in this game i remember i just got on an elevator very simple thing an old mechanical elevator and as it started to go up and you see, it's kind of like the elevator in, in the Eiffel Tower or something. So as you see girders passing you and you're going higher, I completely felt like I was in an elevator. I mean, it was crazy. All this sort of vertigo and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I get that. I did um, a ride once at Universal Studios or somewhere where I, as far as I remember, we just put on these goggles and we sat in chairs. And I don't think there was any physical movement, but it was a roller coaster. And there was certainly a very strong visceral sense of movement oh yeah so provided the the visual feed is telling you something then again the brain sort of goes along with it so okay i feel like i'm on a roller coaster therefore i must be and therefore you get that sort of feeling in the pit of your stomach when you go over the top and i certainly yeah i found it uncomfortable after a few minutes that uh you know it really did feel like i was in a in a in a sort of simulator that was moving around which it clearly wasn't yeah i must say uh christopher nolan god bless him just uh i guess maybe 
last year, not that long ago, sponsored a restoration of 2001, the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey, and then including sending 70, uh, sorry, they transferred it to IMAX. And so I went to see it in IMAX here in New York. And it was the first, it's actually, I've seen it oh, so many times because I love it. I'll see it. I've watched it on my laptop, on my phone, even though it's, <laughs> that is what it is. And I've seen it many times in different kinds of theaters. Seeing it in IMAX was the first time I felt like I felt felt it in the way Kubrick would have wanted us to feel it. And maybe people did the first time they saw things like in, in um, Vista Division or Cinemascope or something, because it was so big. I mean, Jen, there's that scene where uh, you're on the space shuttle going to the uh, space stations, basically the Pan Am airplane, space plane, and the stewardess walks into the sort of rotating part of it and she goes upside down. And just there's all these right. scenes in yeah. the movie where things are spinning completely dizzying in IMAX. It was, it's yeah, I, I, I've seen it in a the theater once or twice, but I've never seen it. I've never seen the 70 mil print of it. And I've certainly never seen the IMAX version of it, uh, which huh. is, you know, to my regret. But uh, yeah. yeah, like I watch it all the time. Yeah. So, okay, I'm going to jump way forward now. Mars is, com- is full of, this is basically, it's a full planetary population, but they're all, well, I guess it would have to, it would be a mixture of proxies and people who are actually there, right? So what is, you are, actually, Alistair, would you, in that situation, would you like to be a person on the planet yourself with lots of proxies as part of the population, or would you like to be a proxy visiting this situation? I'm going to quibble slightly with Ah. Your premise there, yes, um, yes. in the nicest possible way. I, I, I. At the moment, we don't have the capability to put anyone on Mars. I mean, we sort of kind of have the, the the building blocks for that capability, and we've had it since you know at least the 80s. You know, um, but we haven't done it yet. And I kind of have a nagging feeling we're not going to do it anytime soon. Mm. And at the same time, there's a gradually rising awareness of the possibility that you know, the story of life in our solar system may not be solely confined to Earth. You know, there may have been biogenesis, may have happened elsewhere in the solar system, may have happened on Mars, may have happened in in these saline oceans around the gas giants. That narrative is building and has been building for a few decades, the idea that the, the solar system is not sort of sterile. And my I wouldn't say worry, but my suspicion is that as as we become more enlightened and sophisticated in our thinking about these processes, we may conclude that although we have the capability to put people on Mars en masse in terms of Martian colonization, we ought not to do it because Mars is this potential record of, of, at the very least, it may be a record of the story of life in the very early solar system. Even if there isn't any biological activity under, underway on Mars in, in in the present epoch, there may be sort of traces there that we could be in very great danger of contaminating or erasing by our human activities. So my my sort of kind of counter counter retort, my question is that once we have that capability to put people on Mars, say we have it in so fifty years or hundred years to sort of build Mars colonies, do we? Are we going to be smart enough to actually step back and say, okay, just because we can do it, let's not do it. Oh, yeah. Let's leave that for a hundred years more. 
let's just have a sort of moratorium on human settlement of not just Mars, but the whole solar system. Um, we, can, we can live in space stations. Maybe we can live on Phobos and Deimos. So, so we can do a sort of certain amount of human activity in the solar system. Okay. But we should be very, very careful about expanding our human presence into these areas where there may have been biogenesis. So I, I could imagine a scenario where that, that becomes a sort of prevailing viewpoint of our enlightened global civilization which we're obviously heading towards right but mm -hmm. right right so it's like mars is like a nature preserve yeah and we yeah that we, you can we, still go visit cool yeah we could send very you know we, we'd sterilize our robots we'd make sure they were completely free of any sort of biological contamination nothing they're going to bring back and nothing, they, nothing they're going to take to mars as well so we could have all sorts of sort of robotic activity on mars awesome. so we could so we could continue doing really high level geology you know, all the geologists would be able to pick up and examine things just as if they were there. And they, they always say, you know, you can learn, a, you know, a skilled geologist can learn more from just picking up a pebble, looking at the sort of erosion features on it than, than you know, 10 years of probes with, with sensors, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so we can do all that stuff. But do we actually want to start sending people as well if we have that robotic capability? I love this. It's, and it's a, sort of like a clean room environment. So, yeah. so, okay. so scientists uh, use this telepresence, these uh, proxy robots to explore. That is that is really fantastic. And it kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier about fifty years is nothing in the in in the, in the cosmic memory of the moon. Yeah. You know, the moon yeah. give a damn about fifty years, right. <laughs> and Mars won't mm -hmm. give a damn if human beings don't arrive for a hundred years or two hundred years. So, I'm not I'm not sort of saying we wouldn't ever engage in sort of mass settlement mass colonization of mars or any of the other planets but maybe it wouldn't be outrageous to just sort of draw draw a pause and say okay let's evaluate things for a, for a, for a little while before we stampede all all over this uh, territory i must say the builders of jurassic park would have been wiser to instill this kind of possibility maybe uh only allow proxies <laughs> into the park mm -hmm. yeah, it would have saved a lot of trouble yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. yeah, that's really cool. And well, so, I, kind of yeah. I negate your point to some degree, but I think it could equally well go the other way. So we might get um, it, uh, we might get a mixture of human colonists and robotic colonists coexisting on Mars. And that would be very interesting. Yeah, be cool. uh, interesting I, new kind of factionalism. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I just feel like the 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 well here. Let's say it's all proxies and. The thing is that to, to, to learn to use one of these things, especially if you're a scientist and you're supposed to do careful work, let's say you're a uh, uh, like an archaeologist and you are working on a site and everything has to you know be anything you do has to be recorded properly and, and all that work you have to do. There'd be the veteran proxy operator and the newbie. And the newbie would just really be stumbling all over. I mean, just chaos. You know, they'd, you'd have to have a special training area of Mars, which is sort of the the uh, get used to your proxy zone, I think would happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, don't they do that like in uh, MMO games too? There's like a, a newbie area right. that you spawn yeah. in before you can move <laughs> exactly. on to the more advanced ones. Exactly. So if you had that situation, what now I will, I will, as a science fiction writer, I would imagine, and, I, and this actually allows me to ask a question that I'm always curious about. 
I always felt one of my inspirations for doing this show in this sort of format is comes from um, the idea that when you're do it seems to me that when you're doing science fiction, a it causes you to get to go do lots of research about real science, but you also get to play around with situations. So what imbalance would emerge in this situation of a Mars reserve with proxies everywhere? Well, we we first of all we we'd have, I, I, I suppose, all sorts of social divisions um, mm. that are already sort of baked into civilization would sort of play out in these in this sort of robotic humanity 2.0, I suppose you could call it, and you'd have the sort of you know the the elite proxies, the expensive models, the less expensive models. Yes. As you say, the noobs and yeah. the the old the the sort of scary old dudes who've been there for years. Yes. In a way, it would just be exactly the same as if we just colonized Mars, except we wouldn't be bringing our germs with us, but we'd be bringing all the all the foibles of humanity would be there. In essence, it would just be playing out through these robot puppets. Right. But back on Phobos, there's a very bizarre. A situation happening because those old the, the old grizzled dudes are like guys who went into the proxy and decided never to come out so meanwhile their bodies are yes. oh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a story idea there you shouldn't be giving me story oh, ideas. oh no please <laughs> run with it yeah imagine yeah. some sort of grizzled jeff bridges type guy you know sort of yeah that's right who's, whose brain is fully adapted to the dragonfly robot yeah. or something yeah too. yeah yeah, like those guys, you know, you go on, I don't know if you ever played online, I used to play Quake Arena, which is, you know, a shoot 'em up whatever game uh, you play, capture the flag and stuff like that online. And the first time you go online, especially as a noob, you are attacked by people so quickly and so fast, you're just dead instantly. Yeah, And it'd yeah. be those guys, you know, they just be bam. Well, they'd, have, they'd have all that all that sort of stuff would go on as well, wouldn't it? Because the, you know, the, the, the noobs would take their first steps on Mars, but there would be all these crusty old guys who would have put set traps up and pitfalls <laughs> to catch them out. Yeah, yeah, all that stuff. That's what happened. So so, so at some point there was, there was this utopian thing. It was this clean room for science. And then it, you know, we can jump way into the future where it just completely devolved and it became like the, like Westworld or something. Yeah, or like YouTube comment sections. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The height of Western civilization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just horrific. Uh, Now, actually, I can ask you. So, here, another sort of science fiction writer question. I must say, the hibernation thing is a very, very common device, and it's used to spectacular ends. But there's always an interesting, I guess, a a moment there where you kind of have to just say, "Don't worry about that." But I always wonder about who's maintaining this. So, so we got that grizzled guy, right? And he's in he's in some sort of uh, whatever his, his pod is that uh, he went into, and somebody must be maintaining that. Isn't there like isn't that where the greatest danger becomes at some point? Like, what's going on there? Or couldn't something break? Do you know what I mean? First, like in the three body problem, which I love, um, but there's a lot of hibernation, just like boom. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It seemed like that's a lot of trust it, to put into. Somebody. It's one of those very useful sort of science fiction tropes that allows you allows you to have semi-realistic interstellar travel without breaking the speed of light. But mm-hmm. at the same time, you're kind of invoking this kind of not quite impossibility, but something that's sort of very 
perhaps questionable on medical grounds, the idea that you can achieve hibernation. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know there are sort of glimmers of progress. I mean, the European Space Agency, um, I, I, I used to work for them um, in, 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 the, in the early 2000s. And they had, I think they were funding a line of research that was looking into ways of achieving kind of like biological stasis. And they, 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 they there was some medical grounds for this. It wasn't sort of completely pie in the sky. Yeah. And the idea was that you can um, kind of, I think they were using sort of um, hydrogen sulfide as a sort of uh, a chemical agent to sort of slow down cellular processes. Mm. Wow. And they were thinking that you could use this in sort of disaster areas. So there was sort of like real, you know, you, ah, can, you, you can get cool. to people who are seriously injured or, or, or incapacitated and you can put them in a, into a sort of biological stasis until you can get full sort of medical support to them. So there were some kind of real world applications and it was sort of grounded in some plausible research that was going on. But it's a long way from the sort of interstellar, you know, or 2001 scenario where you just kind of climb into a pod and... You, you're asleep for 50 years and, right, and then wake, wake up suddenly. <laughs> and yeah, and you, you've always got to wonder about how how reliable are the sort of support systems. And for me, that's always been like a, a fantastically fruitful story generating idea. It's basically most of science fiction, well, certainly most of the stuff I write is about stuff going wrong, not stuff going right. wrong. Of course, <laughs> I, yes, I, I, right now, I'm writing the story about um, a hibernation starship with robots that kindly robots that are meant to look after the crew of this all the all the frozen passengers on this starliner and they all die and it's the robots have screwed up but it's not intentional they just kind of screwed up and then the robots are like they realize they're in deep trouble because they're all going to be decommissioned when the ship gets to dock (laughs) so they kind of have to sort of figure out how they how they get out of this mess so they just say what if we is there any way that we could actually impersonate all the passengers of the ship Brilliant. By the time it docks, reverse so, proxies. Yeah, yeah. brilliant, brilliant. Right. So it, you know that 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 thing of like who looks after the maintenance systems of the of the is a great sort of source of story ideas. And yeah, I mean, I did I did another book, Chasm City, where I had a interstellar colonization vessel that was going to take a few you know 150 years to get to a planet, and most of the prospective colonists were in hibernation, but there was a small support crew who had to do the whole voyage. So they had to sort of go through three generations and they were, you know, it was a really horrible thing to put people through, but they were, they were the guys who had to sort of make sure all the plumbing was still working and everyone was still frozen. So yeah, yeah they're ideas that really do help generate lots of sort of science fiction scenarios for plausible or otherwise. Yes, I love Chasms. Is, is Chasm City the one where, you, if I remember correctly, is there's like a forest in the middle or there's an old lady that works in the forest? Oh, there's a, there's a jungle. Um, jungle, yeah. Like, yeah there's a, oh, there's, I think sort of forests and jungles crop up in a lot of my stuff, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's, another, there's, 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 there's the, 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 the matriarch in Blue Remembered Earth lives in a space station that's turned into a forest as yeah. well. So, yeah. yeah, it's one of those sort of images that sort of keeps coming back, I suppose, into my writing, just to confuse people. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I suppose, actually, I, I, my distrust of hibernation probably comes from having seen 2001 in my formative years. I was like, well, there's yeah, yeah. no way I'm getting in one of those. <laughs> Clearly, so creepy as well. Those cocoons—they're very creepy, aren't they? So creepy, and and the, the death sequence is so long and yeah. minimalist. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I love. I, I, t- I I've got an, another laptop, and a few years ago, 
I put the HAL 9000 screensaver on it. I have that no, too. Yeah. yeah. It's fantastic. Love it. Yep. Yep. It comes up with all that. All the HAL graphics come up on the la on the laptop, you know. So. Yeah. In fact, in in the office where I work, there are three iMacs, you know, and real big screens. And whenever I'm not there, whenever I leave, I put on the HAL a HAL 9000 uh, simulator, and so it really looks like the inside, like the uh, yeah. cockpit of the Discovery or something. I'm sure. And, and you and, change all the error messages to "I'm sorry, I can't do that." I should. Yeah. I should do that. Yeah. <laughs> there is one. You know, it's all these amazing. I don't know, whoever made that put an insane amount of work into it there is a moment where the ae35 or the the antenna comes up and starts spinning you know and <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah well this is this is fantastic so i think we we're, we'll end with the the image of the grizzly man in his uh, i think what might happen is that uh eventually people are going to get sick of his shenanigans on the planet and they're all going to pop out of their pods and the question is they have to find his pod and then yeah. unplug him. Yeah. And he would have certainly set up all kinds of defenses and misdirections and things yeah, like that. Yeah. 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 And again, you should be very careful about telling science fiction writers ideas for stories. Oh, no. you know? <laughs> you know, having given up the dream of being a science fiction writer when I was very young, I say, please run yeah. with it. That would be amazing. You can just maybe mention, if you make put put my name on a character, that'd be fine. Yeah. That would be sufficient. Yeah. That would be awesome. Yeah. That would be totally great. I just like, can I just throw out one Please. kind of Definitely. crazy? I mean, it's something that sort of occurred to me when we were talking about hitting the limits of that. Not not the time lag that you would need to 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 operate things on Mars, but just dealing with the kind of lunar time lag where you you're talking about latencies of a second or two. I, I'm sort of reminded of those studies that were done in neuroscience labs in the sort of well, as far as I'm aware, it was sort of 60s, 70s, 80s, when they looked at, kind of like they're looking at the mechanics of free will. So they have people with all sorts of sensors on their heads and they're, they're reading brain traces. And they sort of say, lift your hand when you feel like it. So people will initiate an action spontaneously. And they record when that happens. But the the slightly scary thing, if I remember rightly, is that there are sort of there's a sort of like an activation trace in the brain that starts way way earlier than the conscious decision. So there's a kind of lots of sort of subroutines going on the brain that are anticipating our conscious movements, which begins to sort of undermine the notion of free will. So when you think you're doing something, your brain's actually decided already about a second ago it was yeah. going to do it. Yeah. And I thought, well, you know, if 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 we could sort of get into that, hack that machinery that's going on in the brain, we could actually anticipate the signals that we want to send to the telepresence robots, oh. and maybe get a you know get a, like yeah. a, a, a sort of half second or a second lead. Wow! You wouldn't know any difference because you would still feel as if you were doing what you wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So I just think there might be some sort of neuroscience there that can cheat us into thinking that we have a bit less of a latency than is really the case that's really that would be very cool i must say i it reminds me it's a little bit tangential but i uh we did a wonderful episode some time ago with matt's 14 year old daughters are they 14 who are twins <laughs> yep <laughs> and that, that would be like you'd have this proxy would become like your like yeah i don't know the, the simultaneousness of that would be so weird oh yeah yeah <laughs> mm -hmm. talk about bizarre resonances yeah 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 that is fantastic. Yeah, I, I think, uh, I, again, I, 
Oh, I could be wrong, but I feel like Marcus DeSotoy did a show. I wonder if it was a BBC or some British television show where he went and they kind of did that experiment with him. And, and, and he d- does that where they scan the brain and show how long, how that he thought of doing something before he did it. Uh, so also, it also points to, and here, I'll just leave it, us with this incredible cliffhanger. We are proxy. We could be proxies. For some, yes. we just don't know. Yeah, that's right. We're just that's don't know. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, that's why that's happening. So, uh, Al, thank. Oh my, this is such a treat. Yeah, such this was treat. really terrific. I'm really glad you were able to join us. I, I said way too much, guys. I'm sorry about that. But no, not oh, at all. No. The conversation was so stimulating and so interesting. Oh no, it's fantastic and definitely not. <laughs> In gratitude, you're going to receive a finger puppet. Oh, thank you of a great scientist or science fiction character. In your case, I believe it may be a science fiction character. Mm-hmm, that'd be okay. good. Okay. From a wonderful company that uh, some friends of mine are at called the Unemployed Philosophers Guild. <laughs> they have a website called philosophersguild.com. You can go there. And by the way, you or your friends or anyone listening can get 10% off just for, uh, again, I always say this is not, not really an ad or anything. It's just I have friends there and they love our show. Yeah, yep. yep, they're just great folks. Yep, yep. a salute to our, our audience and our guests. You can get 10% off if you go to the philosophersguild.com and you use the coupon code WTIF. Anything you want, anything in the store. Wow. But yeah, we're going to send you that in, in gratitude. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. A couple books here. One is uh, 12 Tomorrows that you uh, contributed to from MIT Press. 12 Tomorrows edited by Wade Rausch. Did you meet Wade Rausch? Do you know Wade? No, I haven't. No, I was I was listening to the um, podcast you did with my my friend and colleague Paul McCauley. Uh huh. Yeah. And Paul mentioned that he had met Wade, but as he said, it for us writers who are sort of pre- predominantly based in the UK, there there are a lot of American editors and people in the science fiction community that that we don't necessarily get to meet, if if at all, you know. So um, yeah, I've I've worked with editors like. I've, known and respected and very much liked, but never actually met them. Um, so all, all our communication is by email. You would think that in the science fiction world, they would come up with a way, create a proxy. Yeah, imagine. Yeah. Imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> your next book, which I'm uh, very eager, and I know all your fans are going to be excited about, is uh, Bone Silence. Bone uh, Silence, yeah. The, is it the third book and would we say it's the conclusion or we just call it the third book in the well it's kind of um it wraps up this little adventure in okay. the lives of the, the nest sisters so i i had so much fun sort of digging my way into that universe and sort of exploring its ramifications and creating all this sort of deep history that i said i don't want to finish it i don't want to close it off forever so i've sort of rounded off their little adventure but there's ample scope for returning to that universe in the future. Fantastic. So the third book in the Revenger trilogy. Uh, actually, Matt, I bet your daughters would like that. Yeah, they probably would. Check that and out. as I said to my editor when I delivered it, I said, never, ever, you know, I, I, I am <laughs> never, ever doing another trilogy. Right. Shoot me if I even mention it. You yeah. know? <laughs> it is funny. They seem like such good things at the time. I think I remember you, I remember hearing you say that before you even did Blue Remembered Earth. Oh, yeah. 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 I've said it before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They don't start off as trilogies. They're kind of like, okay, I'll do a book. Okay, I might, might do a successor. And then the sort of dreaded third volume sort of comes into view as a possibility. And then before you know it, you've 
as they say, you've committed trilogy. That's right. You've yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's like eating a cookie or something, right? You say, I'm just going to have one, and then you have yeah, a second. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Two won't hurt, yeah. Or you're insane like uh, George Lucas, and uh, you're very youthful and ambitious, and you lay out three uh, <laughs> three trilogies in a row, which are a trilogy of their own. So a nine-part story that takes, uh, I don't know, what are we talking now, 45 years? Yeah, whatever happened yeah, to right. that guy? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What a shame. He just went off the deep. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm excited this year, the final. I, I'm excited and a bit sad. I'm a, a Star Wars fan. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Alistair, you can join us in a ritual we do. So if you listen, you heard the Paul uh, uh, Paul McCauley episode, maybe yeah. you heard at the ending, we, we shout to the universe together. Okay. We shout the name of the show because what, what the if, because... Um, we have no idea what we're doing next. No. Do you do you feel that way, or do do you have uh, a lot of ideas, and you're just like, well, it's just a matter of which idea I'm going to do next. No, I, I only ever have at best one idea, ah. and I used that used to terrify me. I mean, after I'd written a few short stories and maybe a novel, I thought, that's it. I've only got one idea left. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've, I've hit the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> but I just yeah, trust that's where we are. You know, there's always another idea that sort of inches its way interview you know so i don't worry about it i don't i don't don't fret about that that's right well we have we then we are here this is why we scream because we are at the bottom of the barrel (laughs) every time (laughs) and we're looking up to the top of the barrel or looking i don't trying to dig a hole i don't know what you do when you're it's a wild uh analogy in there somewhere isn't it yeah (laughs) some of us are at the bottom of the barrel but we're looking at the stars yeah yeah that's very good. Just a, just a small field of view. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so we are pondering that moment right now. And it, it riles us up into a state. Yes. And now we will scream with horror. What? what? The. the... <laughs>